because we don't learn about different religious cultures and traditions. We don't learn about one another. We don't care about one another. Welcome to Hardly Working, a podcast about how we can improve work, life, and everything in between. These are recordings from live conversations on Fishbowl, a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can join us live next time on the Fishbowl app. We have events every day. All right, let's get right into it. Hi, everyone. Good evening from where I am in New York City. Uh, good afternoon, morning, wherever you are. My name is Simranjit Singh. I am the executive director for the Aspen Institute's Religion and Society program. And uh, I'm also the author of uh, this little book I'm holding in my hands in this picture called The Light to Give, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. And, and one of the things you can't fully see in the picture is that uh, as part of my religious identity uh, as a Sikh, I have a turban and a beard. And part of my experience in this world and in this country growing up first in Texas and now in New York uh, has been dealing with uh, religious discrimination in different forms. And it's an issue that has come up over and over again. For me in different contexts, you know, earlier this month, uh, more than 106 security guards were demoted or fired uh, when the city of Toronto announced its new workplace ruling that barred facial hair. And that goes against the Sikh religious practice of not shaving or cutting hair. And it forced the Sikh guards to make an unfair and unnecessary choice between faith and livelihood. And so the, there are ways in which religious discrimination plays out uh, that are more explicit, as in this case. Uh, and although the city backtracked and offered the security guards a religious accommodation and and reinstated them in their roles and issued a formal apology, incidents like these and moments like these raise larger questions for religious minorities. And the question for me, and I'm excited to have a conversation partner here who I'll introduce in a moment. Question for me is, as our societies move towards cultivating inclusion, will religious minorities be included too? And I raise this question because in my work with numerous corporations on diversity and equity and inclusion, it's clear that we've learned that ignoring the inequities all around us isn't getting us anywhere, that avoiding the hard conversations hurts us more than it helps us. In response, we've become increasingly willing to engage with certain aspects of identity, including race and gender and sexual orientation. And there are certain aspects of identity at the same time that we continue to overlook, such as disability or class or age. And then there's religious identity, which leaders don't overlook, but actively avoid. And, and I know there are many reasons for our reversion to discussing religion. It's personal, it's messy, it's sensitive. We'll talk about some of this. In many countries, it carries real risk to life and liberty. And even I, as person of faith, a scholar of religion, I'm reticent to open conversations about religion with colleagues, because who knows who we might offend. But I, I think that's, that's what's at stake here. As someone whose community has been shut out, who's personally been shut out because of how I look and what I believe, as, as with the security guards in Toronto this past month, I want to submit that attentiveness to the religious diversity in our workplace is a critical component of inclusion. And I, you know, this is, I think, on the cutting edge of, of our inclusion conversations. And I'm really happy to have found a thought partner in this space who is in a great leadership position. She's at Pulse State. Her name is Eloisa Domingo. So I'm going to welcome her in. She's the vice president of HR and the chief inclusive diversity and equity officer at All State. So I'm excited to have you here with us, Eloisa, and, and to explore some of these experiences that we have, some perspectives that we've developed uh, in our thinking around religious diversity in the workplace. So Eloisa, I'd love for you to, to sort of jump in and introduce yourself and, and really give us a sense of what brings you to the awareness of, of this particular issue. Sure. Simran, thank you so much. I appreciate, um, again, just the opportunity to be here with you and to have this, what I find to be a very critical and, and you know, to your point, kind of hidden, um, often, you know, discussion. So um, as Simran mentioned, my name is Eloisa. I serve as one of the vice presidents for human resources at the Allstate Corporation. I'm also the chief diversity officer. So the formal title is chief inclusive diversity and equity officer. So my scope runs the gamut um, at Allstate, ensuring that the business practices of Allstate 
pulls the thread of equity, you know, all the way through. So I joined Allstate about a year ago. Um, I've been in the field of diversity for over 21 years, however, mostly in um, healthcare, academic healthcare, academia, pharmaceuticals, and now insurance and finance. So, you know, to Simran's note, that I, for me, there are some personal and professional, you know, kind of ties to this to this conversation. So I identify as Filipina. My parents are from the Philippines. I was raised here in America. And for those of you who are either Filipino or no Filipinos, you know that the majority of us were raised Roman Catholic. There is a small subsection of the Philippines in the South that are that identify as Muslim and so celebrate and practice the religion of Islam. But for me and my family, we we were raised and practice Roman Catholicism. Uh, so we were pretty strict in all senses of the word. I went to private school my entire life. You know, so we I went to church every day, you know, kind of thing. And so, but for me, as I was being raised in that religion, I think for many people, particularly in the in in the Catholic faith or maybe even the Christian, kind of the larger Christian, you know, belief system, I do think that there comes a time when you turn around and you question, you know, what what have I been taught? You know, does it actually align? Because, you know, to to Simran's note, when you intersect religion and, and especially conservative forms of religion with other forms of diversity, sexual orientation, gender identity, you know, even race, colorism, all this other stuff. We all know that religion has taught us some forms of discrimination or or values system, right? And myself, as a person who has seeked injustice work, and I've been that way since I was four, I mean, I can remember getting upset because my sister got different kind of justice, right? You know, kind of different discipline than my brother, although they did the exact same thing. I questioned that. And I questioned kind of the institution that I was brought in, even though I I loved my religion, I loved being a part of it. I questioned it a lot. And as a result of that, I disengaged. I disengaged from the system of the religion. For me, I found that I had more kind of faith and spirituality. Like I wanted to believe in something larger. I wanted to believe in a God. Um, and I explored a lot of different kind of religious faith institutions and, ba- and backgrounds. So that's for me personally. And I will say that I, I now practice Catholicism again, but it's much in the much more broad, in my opinion, sense. My kids were all baptized in the Catholic faith. I teach them, however, you know, that some of the things that you may or may not hear as you learn about Catholicism may not be what also we as a family value, you know, in terms of diversity and cultural competency and, and, you know, and justice and equity. On the professional side to what Simran was saying, completely agree. You know, for those of you who are in the field of diversity, you know that we tend not to touch religion. We, it is not touched with like a 10 foot pole. And if we talk about it, it is broad. It is Oh, we'll talk about multi-faith. You know, we'll we'll create a resource group where everybody, you know, can talk and you don't pray in the corporate space. And, you know, I I have seen as far as people saying, you know, even if you say stay blessed or, you know, those kinds of things on your signature, you were asked to take it down, right? Just these fascinating things, you know, for me. So as a person who's been in the field of diversity for a long time, I question that a lot. I will say one last thing, Simran, and then I'll give the microphone back to you. One thing that I have found, however, to what Simran was saying, healthcare has done a better job, not a great job, but a better job over the recent past incorporating religion and assimilating or I guess accommodating for in a positive way, right? Religion and religious aspects of dress, right? In a variety of the healthcare and and safety um, practices, right? You know, so anytime that you're using PPE, which is personal protection equipment, which is very big in COVID times, but especially when you're in acute care, there are certain things like wearing masks and wearing certain types of masks when you have beards. It it causes the suction on your face is different, right? If you have a clean shaven, you know, face. And so masks have been accommodated, right? To say, oh, you don't have to go, you know, shave. Or somebody who is wearing, you know, hijab or a burqa or something, you know, and and they're wearing that as a part of their faith and their culture and their religion they don't have to be removed from that, you know, instance, because all of our equipment in healthcare has been changed, or not all of it. And some of the policies and practices and understanding has also been globalized, right? Again, that is not, it's not perfect. But having come from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center and Johns Hopkins Medicine, where we supported a number of international patients, I specialized myself in hematology, oncology, 
acute patients from the Arab Gulf, 100% of them identified as Muslim, I found that we really tried to accommodate and support the religious preferences and celebrations and observances of our staff, right? As we were also doing that for our patients. So lots to improve on, lots to have a conversation about. So I'm very excited to be here, Simran. Yeah, thank you. Well, I, I mean, your your background and experience sort of it, it speaks for itself, and and you know you are somebody who's been an expert in this case for several years. And before it was cool to be working in in diversity and inclusion, you 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 were doing it, and so really grateful to be in conversation with you and and to learn from your insights. And, and I'm happy to share uh, some of my learnings as well, if it's helpful to folks. The place where I would really love for us to begin is the why. I mean, I think, let me say it this way. So often uh, when I raise the question, it's not on people's radars, diversity and inclusion practitioners in particular, that they're missing something and that it's a big thing, that religion is a really important aspect of people's identity, not everybody's, but for a lot of people. And it's a really important driver of behavior too. And so the question for me is, how is it that we've come to a place where we are so mindful about being more occlusive, being more attentive to people's identities, I can sort of understand, and I think many people can, while there are certain aspects of identity, depending on your cultural context, that you prioritize or that you forefront. And in, and in the U.S. context, I think race is at the forefront and gender and sexual orientation tend to follow and other aspects get sort of second shrift and I think that's understandable for a lot of reasons. It's unfortunate that we can't do more um, and, and do better, but that's it's practical to some degree. But I do want to explore this question briefly with you of why, because I think if we can start to understand what is happening psychologically and culturally uh, that precludes us from considering religion as an important aspect of identity that we should account for in the workplace, then perhaps uh, we can develop some smart solutions. So, so talk us a little bit through the why. Yeah, so that's a really, you know, as you were talking, I was writing down some notes, Simran. So for those of you, you know, who know the DNI work, if there's any DNI professionals out there, and, and really anybody who's run an initiative or a program, right? You know that whatever data or evidence you have helps to create a quantifiable business case on the why. Why are you handling a certain population. So African, you're, you're building a race-based program specifically for African-American and Black. So I'm just going to use this as an example, right? If you have the data that shows that your attrition rate, which is how many people are leaving your organization, is high and the highest rate of attrition is your Black and African-American employees and you have a value around that, that data then drives the business case to say, okay, we need to really invest in these programs. Again, so it's evidence-based solutions. I will tell you, Simran, I would be very interested if any organization outside of a healthcare-based organization is asking your employees about their religious preferences or their religious identity. Asking that question, using that information, what we call operationalizing that information for the business case, like as, as I mentioned earlier, to create evidence-based solutions for belonging or culture or hiring or whatever like that, and also tracking that information. Again, I have been in the field for a very long time. In healthcare, we have a business case to ask that, not just of our patients, but also of the individuals that care for the patients, the physicians, the nurses, and things like that, right? So, you know, there is a clause in many, uh, at many healthcare facilities that if, for example, if a nurse, you know, based off of her religious preferences and, and faith-based preferences and spirituality-based preferences cannot support a medical procedure that is not acute, so an inpatient, you know, not emergency medical procedure based on their religious background, and that we can fulfill a safe, world-class experience by replacing that nurse, we will do it. We've done that, okay? And so by disclosing what your faith is, you can then say, I'm only opting out of certain things that may or may not, you know, be a part of my faith-based practice, but only in inpatient situations, in acute care and emergency, you don't have the choice. You, you're there, you're going to save the life, you're going to support, you know, safety and low-cost care. But people say Simran all the time, right? What you measure gets done, what you measure gets tracked, and what you measure also creates more solutions. It is rare 
to ask that question. However, the dichotomy of it is, is that we do, most companies have discrimination-based practices that would, that do protect um, religious identity. I mean, that's a protected class, right? But yet we don't ask those questions. You know, we do ask questions about race. We ask questions about um, ethnicity, sexual orientation. We track and utilize that data. We don't have that data. So you, so we, again, you really can't, you know, create you know, that level of the business case. I, I also, you know, I think for me, what I found the other why is this kind of excluded as a part of the discussion is I think there is a perception that religion has been politicized and that more than any other kind of demographic, it is so deeply seated in the political nature of a nation, a country, you know, and, and we'll specifically talk about here in the United States. I mean, we all know, right? I mean, the majority of this government in the United States was created based off of a Christian values system, right? And so there is a centricity around a certain religion in America in the same way that many organizations, the way that they built their algorithms were based off of a certain type of person, right? A certain literacy level, a certain education level, a certain somebody who is male as opposed to female, somebody who is white as opposed to, you know, not white, somebody who is cisgender as opposed to not, you know? And so these algorithms were built off of certain belief systems and identities. And, you know, I, I think that that has a lot of, of still, you know, kind of quote merit in terms of the why, why is this not, you know, kind of a constant conversation or, or even any part of a conversation when we open up about diversity, Simran. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that, and I, I think, I think you're, you're pointing us in, in, in some really important directions here, uh, with regard to why religion isn't factored into our standard conversations around inclusion. And part of what I want to add to to what you're saying here is elements of uh, my own personal experience of being on the minoritized side of religion, being in the religious minority and being so often the one who's on the perceiving end of, of exclusion. And part of what I've, what I've experienced, and you know, this is something I, I talk about in, in my book that I'm sharing here, growing up in a country that has no idea who I am. People see my turban everywhere I go. Uh, they see my beard, you know, whether I'm in the grocery store or walking down the streets where I live in New York or in an airport, definitely everybody notices me at an airport. People have no idea who I am. And, and yet they make assumptions about me because they think they know. And their assumptions are usually wrong. Well, I mean, not just in terms of how they ascribe religion to me in terms of uh, which religion I am, right? Most people in this country today think that I'm Muslim, even though I'm not. And then they also ascribe value judgments on top of that, right? Because I'm visibly religious, uh, because I wear a turban, they assume that I must be fundamentalist or orthodox or hardcore right and those are those are the first terms that come to people's minds but then layered underneath that is well we must be violent and closed-minded and misogynistic and you know most recently i share a story in my book about how surprised i was when my now wife that we were dating at the time her best friend came out to her as gay and he begged her he begged her not to tell me because he was like man that guy is religious. Like, there's no way he's going to accept me. And so the assumption that he had because of my visible religious identity, uh, that therefore I was socially or politically conservative. This is to your point, Elise, about religion being politicized. I think part of our challenge in this country is because we don't talk about it, because we don't know how to talk about it, because we don't learn about different religious cultures and traditions. I mean, I, I found this in teaching college students and graduate students, you know, these 18 year olds come to my classroom and I ask them what they know and they don't know, they don't know anything. And it's not, you know, this, this is not a, a rant against millennials. This is, this is a, uh, an observation about America's cultural and religious literacy. We don't learn about one another. We don't care about one another. And therefore, we don't make life easier for one another. We, it's, it's really difficult to create inclusive spaces uh, when we don't take the time or have the opportunity to actually know what that would look like. Like, what is it that people want or believe or would benefit from if, if we gave them the opportunity? So this is a reflection from my side of the conversation in which I, I'm looking around and saying, Man, these conversations on 
racial justice or gender equity or whatever there, I'm like, man, I would love to be included in these conversations because they would make my life easier and they would make my kids' life easier and they would make my community's life easier. So I want to I want to turn this back to you, Louisa, and, and ask you another question to sort of build on what you shared previously. And, you know, I, I'd love for you to draw on your experience within the field more largely. Give us a, a sense of why does it matter that we create inclusion for diverse religious communities? And and maybe maybe the way to really frame that question is to say, what's at stake? What do we what do we lose? Uh, if we don't start bringing religion into our conversations and our efforts around diversity and inclusion? Yeah. So I, th- I think that's a really, really good question. You know, I one thing that is funny about my field is that we like trend words, right? So it was diversity and inclusion, inclusion and diversity, diversity, inclusion and equity. You know, so now equity is included. And now it's the B, right? Belonging, which came came along about, I don't know, three or four years ago. Uh, and then the additional term is authenticity, right? Being your authentic self. That is a relatively disingenuous, the intent is great. The practice of allowing people and asking people and modeling for people to be really, really authentic is disingenuous because of everything that we're talking about. Because we as companies and organizations, at least most of them don't, again, don't ask this question. They don't open the conversation. Um, there's a lot. Another word is intersectionality. It is rare that in most of the intersectionality conversations is gender and race um, or, or sex assigned at birth and race primarily um, or, or ethnicity. You know, so a woman of color, a man of color. There's also, you know, mental health plus culture, you know, for example, and, and other other interceptions that are significant and show this uh, this idea of a dynamic, authentic individual. I have seen conversations around LGBTQ plus religion, but outside of that, it it really again has not shown up in any significant way within a lot of these kind of corporate or or larger kind of conversations in in institutions, you know, like this. The risk, you know, Simran, as you, as you're noting. Is again, I mean, this disingenuousness, you know, we, we talk a lot about this cancel culture. Everybody says, oh, this cancel culture. I think one thing that I'd like to kind of turn it on, LeVar Burton said this, is he said, it's not just, it's not the cancel culture, it's a consequence culture. It's kind of calling things out that for a long time had not held any consequences for the behaviors or the things that people were saying. And now what kind of larger populations are doing is calling it out and saying, you know, they're, they're, now it's time for consequence. And whether that's a positive consequence or a negative consequence, I think that, that most of it could be educative. And, and for me, one of the things that I tend to do with organizations is to say, okay, if you spout this idea of diversity, right, which is difference, tends to be quantitative in terms of, in, in, in most organizations, what, who are the people that we have? Okay. Inclusion, this idea of the action of, including people, right? So uh, in space of, of inclusion. Equity is the choice about making sure that all people have what it is that they need to be successful. And that might be different for each person or every every group. Belonging, I, I per- personally, you know, kind of like a sense, uh, a different sense or, or a function of inclusion, measuring, you know, belonging and inclusion and engagement. And then this idea of being, you know, authentic, I think we run the risk as organizations and being disingenuous when we're saying all these things and we're really not talking about all of these things. You know, I think the other thing too is as we as we were talking, you know, through these, you were saying, Simran, all of these, you know, kind of examples that when we don't talk about them, it just perpetuates assumptions and stereotypes. That is a massive risk. That alone is a massive risk, right? Why is it that organizations on a, on a monthly basis, we talk about finances? Because we, we want to make sure that we understand, you know, that, okay, how much do we actually spend? How much do we actually lose? What is that? What is our actual profit margin? It's that, it's that adjective of actual, right? And so the elevation of these conversations allows for a, or a, for a deep and broad understanding. And again, just like you said, without having those deep, elevated kind of typicalized, normalized conversations, then it just kind of stays, well, whatever you believe is kind of what you believe. And I, I do, I do, I, I definitely agree with you. I mean, again, my kids, 
are baptized in the Catholic faith. We do, we do go to, you know, to church. And even there, you know, and I, I think for me, I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> proactive about teaching them about different faiths and religions and things like that. But even, even then, you know, their literacy level is pretty low. Why? Because they have friends who are saying things to them about somebody who looks like Simran or somebody who looks, you know, who has, you know, a hijab on or somebody who, you know, is Jewish and is wearing a wig. I mean, and all of these things that they're learning, I have to, you know, couch and reverse and talk, and talk you know, about that. That's a proactive part on, on my part. But I, I recognize that because around them, there is a lack of education and a lack of openness to these conversations. That's what they're learning. That's what they're learning, right? And that is a typicalized conversation for them. So I think, I think that's what we, what kind of we're running a massive risk about, Simran, if we're not opening up that conversation, even let's just personalize it just before I kind of stop. Most importantly, I mean, here you are having these conversations with us, Simran. My, my assumption is that many people on the phone are like either nodding their heads or you're remembering yourselves instances where you were discriminated against based off of what you look like because of a religious value, right? Or what you believed in or taking time to go to a prayer room or bowing your head before you ate your food. You know, I assume that some of you or many, maybe many of us have experienced that. The risk outside of everything that I just talked about is holding that type of personalized hurt right over time. And that accumulates into historic and traumatic mistrust of organizations, of one another. We have seen that over years and years and years, that historic and, and, and traumatic mistrust turn into walls and barriers, right? That to me is a massive, you know, in, injustice. That, that's why we need to be talking about some of those things. Yeah, thank you. I love that. And then I, I want to layer one more perspective here, but before I do, I'll say we're about half hour into the conversation. I see some people have raised their hands for an opportunity to share. And I will say, give us, give us one more round back and forth, Eloise and I, and then we will invite you in to the conversation. Part of what you're describing, Eloise, to me, I think is really, it's a challenge that I've struggled with personally. And I want to take it to the individual level for a moment because I, you know, I want to give us in the room today, the the benefit of the doubt and say, we intend to be open-minded and we intend to be inclusive. And I'm guessing if you're here, that's important to you. And and part of the challenge, and I, I can share this about myself too, is that even those of us who have that best of intentions, sometimes we fall short. And, and for me, you know, I, I shared the example of my, my wife's friend who, who assumed that I would be homophobic and I, but I was surprised to hear about that assumption because I'm, I'm not that way. But I will also share, I mean, I could share dozens of stories with you where I write about one in my book, actually, where I was on an airplane and this gentleman gets on and sits, he's supposed to sit next to me and he's clearly very upset already. And then he sees me and he's even more upset. Um, and, you know, I try to say hello and he gives me the cold shoulder and, you know, turns me down the whole kind of like Worst case scenario for me, if you can imagine, as someone with a turban and beard on an airplane, and then he turns on his TV and flips it to Fox News, and they were showing kids in detention centers near San Antonio, where I'm from, and he's sitting there shaking his head in disgust and annoyance, and I'm like, oh my god, like this guy, like how, what am I going to do sitting next to this person? I turned to a strategy that I've, you know, employed since childhood to try and diffuse tense situations, especially around racism. And I asked him if he was heading home, right? Like just, just trying to make some small talk. And, and he responded. I didn't really know if he would. I just wanted to offer the invitation, but he responded. And in his response, he started telling me about how he was coming home from chemo treatments uh, to treat the cancer that he was going through. And that's why he was so upset. I mean, he didn't tell me that's why he was so upset, but like, it was pretty clear then. And, you know, what happened through this conversation was I came to realize that I was assuming what he was assuming about me. And maybe he was, right? Maybe, maybe he did have these assumptions about me and, and maybe I changed them and maybe I didn't. And who knows? But what it really revealed to me in this moment, it was, it was sort of an eye opening experience for me where I was like, Oh, wait, like this guy might be failing me, but I'm also failing him. 
And I didn't even think that it was possible for me to do that. And that's, that's the really dangerous part, right? I think to, to, to sort of bring the story home in, in the DEI conversations, we are so often self-congratulatory about how open-minded we are that it breeds a, a level of arrogance that says we're not susceptible to excluding anyone because our entire world is constructed around including people. And what we know in our hearts and in our minds, like the science tells us this too, that even, even those of us who are conscious that we have unconscious bias, we're still susceptible to it. And we should be more attentive to that. So that to me is, is part of the challenge and also part of the risk, right? Part of the risk in this DEI work is for us to come through and think we have solved all the problems, or at least we have answers to them and not hold possible or not hold the possibility before us uh, that we also personally and industry-wide, uh, we have some work to do. That's just a, a quick reflection from my side. And I, I share some of this in, in the book here. I want to ask you one more question before we open it up to, to the members and the audience. And, and, um, and the question is, okay, so, so we're aware that this is a challenge. We're aware religion is not part of the conversation and it should be. So then the question becomes, what do we do? How do we start to take steps towards ensuring uh, that religion becomes part of our workplace conversations on DEI? First of all, Sarah, I, I really I want to acknowledge what you were saying earlier, because you're right. You know, oftentimes in the diversity field, when you become you assume a role in the diversity field there. One of the things I love about this field is that you there are warriors. We we are warriors. Right. We advocate. We champion in that same vein. This field was one of the one of the, the things that I love about the field are also the things that have created, like you said, that level of arrogance and that level of unfortunately, kind of a conspiracy theory. Some of it is, some of it is merited. I don't, I'm not, again, historical mistrust and trauma is real. It is real. The consequences of that are real. And at the same time, right, inclusion means including everybody. And even for myself, that is really hard. It's, it's interesting to listen to your, to your commentary because I have found myself often, often assuming malintent of people who don't automatically, quote, get it, right? I'm like, dang, like, why don't you get it? Like, why don't you, you know, why, why don't you want to drive your representation numbers up? Why don't you want to spend your money on diverse suppliers? Like, dang, right? And when I really dig and I pause, similar to the way that you said about the man who was handling his cancer treatments and his, and his situation, his health situation, I know I have found myself not... Again, not assuming good intent sometimes. So, so I, I appreciate you, you know, you, you saying that. In terms of your, I like almost forgot your question. <laughs> so remind me of your question. Yeah. The, the question was, um, so what, what do we do? How do we, how do we make yeah, got it. our workplaces more inclusive? Yeah. Okay. So two things, really three things. Oftentimes what you want to do is kind of the, the dream is to change hearts and minds. Okay. So let's just start there. Hearts and minds change mostly when you're working kind of one-on-one, you know, with individuals. So for those of you who are out there, especially those of you who manage teams, manage people, one thing that I would encourage you to do is to ask your company or do it yourself. You know, if there are religious holidays and observations that your team recognizes. So for example, when I took, when I took on my team, we asked, you know, what are the things throughout the year that we need to be aware of personally. I mean, Allstate has a multicultural calendar and we look at high holidays and we look at Ramadan and we, we look at all of those things so that the business practices don't intercept as much as we possibly can with those holidays and observances and celebrations, Day of the Dead, a variety of things. But then I have a sit-down conversation with my team and I say, what are the things that are critical to you that may or may not show up on some of these other holiday calendars and all this other stuff, right? What does that actually mean to you? And when you're using your PTO, again, you know, pay time off, as, as many of you know, is based off of an calendars of PTO and use of PTO and use of what is it called corporate holidays. That's based off, a cert, off of a certain religion. And, you know, it's based off of a certain, you know, faith-based background. And so it was just this year, by the way, that my kids' districts gave us all the high holidays off. This is the only year Ramadan isn't off, right? Some of the other, you know, significant religious observances 
for other religions, even though there is there is quantifiably large volumes of these of these communities where I live, we don't we don't have that all. You know, so a teacher has to do what use PTO, you know, to do that. So then, one thing that I would encourage you to do is that if you do run teams, ask the question and say, is there anything that we need to be aware of as a leadership team or as a leader of this team, so that I can be aware of how to best support you, how to best support the time that you need you know, to celebrate around observations, celebrations, and holidays. So that's something simple that you can do, right? Systemically. So that's a modeling of a behavior. Systemically, you can also then go to your HR team and ask, you know, how are we, how are we looking at these types of things, making sure that holidays and observances and all these observations aren't, we don't, you know, we don't schedule, you know, anything significant, any business meetings or anything like that over, you know, some of these things. Most companies do a good job of this already, but for you to advocate and for you to push that is also a systemic change, right? So real change happens not just when you're changing hearts and minds, but also when you're rewriting the systems that were once centered to a to kind of a majority culture, right? Or a majority view. Again, I'm not I'm not demonizing anybody. It's just that these are how some of our algorithms were 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 written. Right. These are the rules that we all live by. These are the things that have just been, you know, demonstrated the rest throughout their years. And sometimes if we don't question that, then the algorithms will live on. Those, in my opinion, are some of the easy ways at Allstate. What we have is we have not just our religious calendar and observances and things like that, but we also send out one pager, you know, information. So what is Ramadan? I'll just take it, you know, what is Ramadan? So you give, you know, what this is, right? And then what we do is we say, okay, so if you're a people manager, how does that impact you? What are some things that you should be thinking about if you have individuals who identify within the Islam religion and practice, you know, Ramadan um, or practice fasting? So meeting schedules, times for prayers are increased, you know, th- you know, those kinds of things. And so the practice of your business should be accommodated during that time. And then there are also some other things like just education about how do you say certain phrases, you know? So I, th- those are just some things in the immediate as you walk away from this and to say, I would like to do something now, you know, certainly educate yourself and ask questions, you know, in, in humility. I do think that, again, I, I cannot stress enough. Oftentimes when you help rewrite algorithms, meaning you look at the way that, that your systems were built and acknowledge that there may be some bias that, that was written in. Go to your leaders and say, hey, listen, you know, this precludes us from having conversations about religion. This precludes us from having, you know, real change that also supports religious minorities. And how could we potentially change that? One thing I would also encourage us to think about here, and we haven't talked all the way through this here, Simran, but, you know, there is, when I was working at Cincinnati Children's and I worked with all of these families from the Arab Gulf, and again, all of them, all of them, there are about 840 patients or families that came in and, and, and worked with us for about two and a half years in our hematology oncology unit. Very, very, very sick kiddos, highly acute kiddos. One thing that I think a lot of people don't, we need to educate ourselves better on, and this is not me being arrogant. I, I learned this, like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize this, is that the intersection of culture and religion is very significant. This idea of, for example, a woman wearing a hijab, that some people say, oh, that's part of culture, that's part of religion, right? It's also, it's part of both, right? And and how how are the rules and the significance of utilizing that, that hijab and the rules that come along with that, how does that ebb and flow? Because I think what we can also come to is it's like, oh, she's wearing a hijab. That means X, Y, Z, right? And so we stereotype, positive or negative. Right. And so their generalizations, by the way, are a, are a place to start. Stereotypes are a place that we stop. Stereotypes will stop us dead in our tracks. Generalizations at least get us to a place where we can start asking some questions. So I think that's the other thing that we have to think about as leaders and as, as thinkers and to contemplate what is the, what is the interception of culture and religion? How do both of those things in, interact? How does one, one influence the other? Because they, they then show up differently for each you know, person or they, they, they create a different expression based on how those things are, are intercepted. Yeah. I appreciate all of this. Always. Thank you. Thank you for your insight. And, you know, one of the things that I, I want to share, and, and then we'll open it up for uh, comments and, and questions from folks. So feel free to raise your hands now if you'd like, and, and we'll get to you in a moment, but just a quick reflection. And that is, I think part of people's reluctance in making 
religion a part of the workplace conversation is that it can feel really scary and, and you don't want to offend people and you want to be sensitive. Religion is, I think, by virtue of what it contains, it can be really volatile. And so the question becomes, how do we approach this so that it's so that our workplaces are faith inclusive without making them faith centric and feel like we're privileging a certain community or another? And so your point about asking and listening, Eloise, I think is a really critical one because you can't know what is desired or wanted or needed uh, without asking the question. And I think there's some real humility in that. And that's really important. And the other thing that I want to say here is, you know, to your point about calendars, I think that's one example that we can look at where when you are coming from a dominant tradition or the mainstream majority or what we might in, you know, sociology just refer to as the norm, right? You're coming from normative culture. You don't even think to question that because it's just how things have been and it's convenient for you. But for those who are coming from the margins, like myself growing up, we always had to choose between our holidays, if we were going to celebrate them or missing school. And while we could get an excused absence, my parents would always say, no, that's not worth it. It's too high of a cost. And, and the reality is our Christian friends did not have to make that choice. They didn't have to pay that cost of either missing the days that were sacred to them or missing school, which was very important, of course, for their, for their formation. So anyway, it's, it's just to your point about mainstream normative culture and how we can start to see the privileges that are so hard to see sometimes because we don't even know to question them. So I'll pause there and I see a question, um, Jameson, I'll invite you to offer your words. I just push the button. I agree. It's very difficult. Um, I've, I've been guilty of, you know, participating in Christian ERGs and I tried to participate in every kind of ERG. Because I have a brother who's two brothers who are homosexuals and, and, um, you know, so I attended, you know, pride ERGs. And, you know, and also I have an uncle who's Iranian, his family's Muslim. And, um, you know, so I, I have a very diverse family background. But I think including everyone, if we could all, if it, if it could be seen as everybody's destiny and if if people could just we could focus on a a, a higher power you know not not the religion itself but just the higher power because there's things that i don't accept within christianity there's things that i don't you know that i mean all 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 religions really have violent parts in in each book of each of each religion and and to people who aren't religious it's really they they see it as uh moving backwards but but i I believe in faith and i believe in before before my ever believing in you know anything a creator uh was was my belief in fate and destiny and 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 i believe if we can include every team member and to our into a destiny or a fate that our company is going to achieve, I believe it, 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 it could it could really bring a lot of momentum. And that's all I had to add. Thank you, Jameson. Appre- appreciate that uh, perspective. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing because we, as much as, as much as we want to be inclusive about people bringing in their convictions and, and as Eloisa was saying, their, their authentic selves to the workplace and to feel like they're psychologically safe as, as we say consistently within within our industry, we also don't want to end up in a place where we are imposing or pushing a particular perspective on anyone either. And that's that's part of that's part of the challenge. And and we've seen historically uh, how sideways things can go uh, when we when we fall into that space. So anyway, it's it's a it's a really uh, nice perspective, Jameson. Thank you for that. And Jay, um, I've uh, invited you up as well. So please feel free. Awesome. Uh, thank you both so much for this. It's been such a fas- fascinating and insightful session. Eloisa, earlier you mentioned using quantifiable data to make business decisions to drive those diversity initiatives. And I was just curious, how do we get from there to drive change? What sort of tools, platforms, or solutions do you suggest 
HR managers, leaders can use to quantify that data and make that business decision? Great, great question, Jay. So, you know, so let's just start you know, simple. So there's any time that you're looking at quantified, you know, so 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 just numbers, right? What is the percentage of females, people who identify as female or male or prefer not to answer? That's significant data, right? How many people in your, so this is just representational, we call rep data, right? So how many people in your organization identify as Black or African-American or prefer not to answer? You know, how many people have preferred not to answer in all of your race and ethnicity, you know, data? So that's just on its on its face. Then looking at things like, then what is your promotion rate of African-Americans as opposed to, you know, white individuals? How many people or, or Asians or Hispanics, how many people of color are in your leadership levels as opposed to kind of in your lower, you know, bands? In most organizations, most organizations, especially in America that, that, that identifies predominantly white organizations and most organizations are predominantly white organizations. Most of the people of color diversity, race and ethnic diversity, is in the lower bands. And so it's this X factor. And if you have an X, so essentially the higher up that you go in the organization, the more white people are in leadership because a lot of the the gravity of the people of color are in the lower levels of the organization. Typically, this changes right about senior manager level or director level. And then the X, the other part of the X that goes down is the engagement of people of color is actually very high. It's also the same for women, tend to be high because why? You don't have to assimilate. There's a lot of people who look like you, act like you, you know, speak your language, understand you at those levels. The engagement levels and the belongingness goes down as you get up into the organizations. Why? Because there's less of us. For me, there are no Filipina females at Allstate at my level. None. I'm the only one. Okay. There are no Filipina females like immediately below me, maybe two or three. We have thousands and thousands of individuals. Do you see what I'm saying? Like if I wasn't kind of comfortable in my skin, I would have to give up a part of my identity. And and that's kind of where the, the data, you know, kind of comes you know, into play. So using your dashboards, making sure that you have that information in your dashboards. And then I'll say one last thing and turn it over to other individuals. And Jay, certainly you can you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I would be more than happy to talk with you about, about this because this is a significant conversation. Is how are you also elevating this conversation in the same way that you're talking about money? So in most organizations, you talk monthly about your finances. You know, basically every organization looks at their checkbook once a month. All of the leadership come into a room. You look at how much money you spent, X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z, how much you're investing, da, 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 da. Normally, diversity data is either at town halls or it's saved for a special occasion or quarterly at best. And people argue, oh, it's because there's not a lot of change in diversity. Yeah, but then what you're also doing is you're risking that we're going to wait every quarter to have conversations about this. At Allstate, we basically said, no, every time that you pull out the checkbook, you're also going to have a conversation about diversity. Even though the, our changes in terms of our rep numbers, our promo numbers are like less than 1%, it's just the messaging of these conversations are just as significant as checking our checkbook every month. So I, I would just say that, Jay, just to kind of start that conversation, because I just want to be cognizant that other people might want to jump in, but feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and we can continue the, the, the chat. Will do. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this from you both. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. We have, looks like, a few more minutes. If someone wants to jump in and Jack, you are welcome to join us. Hi, good afternoon. I actually came from the private sector with a multinational before I uh, went into public sector where I am now. One of the interesting things that I've seen over my time is particularly the locality that I work for. We have started to use a, a more open system for doing the calendar planning and things of that nature and becoming more open to that. And it's still a learning process. But my personal experience in dealing with cultures uh, outside of, you know, the comment for, for my area and my, my particular talents was becoming a resource for the locality and the HR department in certain factors that I was aware of from the private sector. It allowed me to become a stronger resource for the, the government that I work for and gave them a lot more diversity and understanding. And that's one of the real keys is understanding of the culture, understanding of religion. Culture is the doorway to 
including religion, into those kinds of processes. They in particular have said, we never knew that we had this diversity in our, in our midst. And it's how they opened up the door to that. They, they kind of opened up different levels of, do you have an expertise in this area or do you have, you know, understanding of culture or, or this faith? And please give us, you know, some background on that. And which actually found to be a lot more accepting and a lot more, a lot more educated. Thank you, Jack. I appreciate that. And I, I mean, I, I resonate uh, with that reflection. And I, I mean, I'll say, I mean, even at, even in DEI spaces, people will look at me and be like, oh, well, you're, you're the diverse one. So, so what do you have to learn? And I'm like, man, I, I don't know anything. Like I, I need to learn everything that you just described through in the same ways that you described, like interaction and opening up and opening myself up. Yeah. It's, I, I think that's, that's the name of the game. And there's something really personally enriching about all of this, all of this as well. And so, yeah, I appreciate, appreciate that, that reflection from you. So I, I'll say we're, we're reaching the top of the hour and I know Eloisa has, has kids to, to care for. And uh, I'm going to go check and make sure that mine are asleep. I really, I really hope they are. Um, but thank you. Thank you everyone for joining us. This is a con- conversation that Eloisa and I are, it's a topic we're very passionate about and, and we've been inspiring about uh, for some for some time now and we're excited to be pushing the envelope and, and making some space for for this issue uh, and thank you also for for your support all of you who have joined in the new book that i just launched this week i hope you'll find it interesting and enjoyable and insightful and mostly i hope you find it funny uh, that's that's always most important um so thank you for that the book is called the light we give how sick wisdom can transform your life and eloisa thank you again for taking out time especially uh, when you have parenting duties to, to be with us and share share your insights thanks a lot absolutely absolutely thanks to everybody as well all right take care everyone bye that's all folks thanks again for listening to hardly working join us live next time and talk directly to the speakers and who knows end up here Fishbowl is a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can download Fishbowl on the App Store or Google Play. If you want to host a Fishbowl live event, get in touch at live at fishbowlapp.com. See you soon!